Well, hello again, agitators. I've been thinking about maybe a nickname for supporters or fans of the Trillicoo podcast. How how do you feel about being called agitators? Maybe you can reach out to me and let me know. I don't know. We'll continue to workshop that. But Scott and I are in week two of our three-week break before we kick off season four. We're actually going to kick off season four with a conversation uh, between myself, uh, the Phantom, and the Phoenix from the Illharmonic Orchestra. Longtime Trilloquy listeners uh, know what they're about and know what the Illharmonic is, but we'll be back with that on June 8th with the start of season four. But in the meantime, I wanted to offer another extended cut of a conversation that I had that was featured on the Trilloquy podcast. So uh, several weeks back, maybe about three or four weeks back, I spoke with Andy and Travis from the Living Earth Show. We had such an incredible conversation that I wanted to be sure to share our full conversation with you so you can dig into not only some of the um, stuff that we talked about that didn't make it to the show, but I don't know, to give you kind of a back, backstage look, behind the curtain look at what some of these conversations look and sound like before they're edited down into what makes it up to the Triloquy podcast. If you're unfamiliar with the Living Earth Show, I'll have their website linked in the description of this replay. So please enjoy. Scott and I will be back on June 8th to start season four of the Trilogy podcast with a brand new opus. But in the meantime, here is my extended uncut conversation with Andy and Travis from the Living Earth Show. I'll see y'all next week for one more Trilogy replay. And then the following Wednesday, Scott and I will be back for season four of the Trilogy podcast. Huge thanks to everyone for your continued support. Please enjoy my conversation here again with Andy and Travis from the Living Earth Show. Peace. Don't laugh at me, Andy. Uh, I don't know that like I've I think it's like different because like Andy and I, because we we pride ourselves on having a multitude of, of different projects, like maybe recreational recreational cannabis use like in um, the Living Earth show is like the, the spaces that we're in is different than maybe we'd see like when we're performing as commando. Mm. Um, and, you know, California, you know, we're we're we've been doing regular seasons of music in the Bay Area for 12 years. I don't think much has changed during yeah. that time. Yeah. Um, the the Living Earth shows cannabis use. Like, <laughs> I kind of want to tread... I know that this question was thrown at me, but like, I kind of want to have Andy go first uh, to... Well, please, <laughs> Andy. I, because, because like, I'm, I, th- I feel self-conscious now that I'm like TMI all the time. <laughs> and i don't know that that's like the pragmatic way forward here uh i do i do i my first instinct when like kind of question about like the intersectionality of cannabis and the living earth shows to talk about like our the early years of the ensemble and then rehearsing new complexity same music. same 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 like yes go, go I, for it no no i appreciate your perspective on this like i'm gonna flatter you into answering this god okay um <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know i think like so the the thing you're talking about is like one of the things we did in the early days of like our ensemble is because like I was actually talking with someone yesterday about this, about like the the specifically kind of like gendered machismo that went into our early decisions to like, what are we going to do as an ensemble? We're going to memorize the hardest, most complicated things like because mm-hmm. that's because that's what virtuosity is. Right. Um, and it was really hard. Um, obviously. And so like, we'd have like, we'd be memorizing like this, like this Fernie Ho piece, this microtonal one. It's really cool, but it like took, takes like a year to learn or whatever. And we tried to like in rehearsal, find ways to like throw each other off and like, like, like sort of simulate the stress of a live performance. And we would like, we would sort of like substance it. I think we like would smoke and like take a couple shots before running like the set in our rehearsal space and just see if we could still keep it in and do it and do it late at night too. So it was yeah, just, yeah. Like, it was kind of like batting with the donut on just to, you know, to kind of, uh, impede. Yeah. Sure. sure. God, it was awful. <laughs> um, and it's one of those things Stinky. that like, ugh. but like, it was one of those things that, um, is, is, was very uncomfortable, came from perhaps toxic places and also it was a little complicated because I think it made us a lot better. Yeah. Like um, the other place I would go with substances though, or go ahead, you, you, you go. No, no, it's just, it's like really, it's, it's fun to like immediately jump into gendered machismo. 
Well, on question one, but uh, you know, it's fun to jump into <laughs> cannabis on question one. That's not my. <laughs> well, that, I mean, I, I, I try to well, keep it fun, and, and because and and the reason I ask is because I think the bigger point is that there are so many people who still see all art spaces, you know, despite mm -hmm. our different approaches to it, as stuffy, as shirts tucked in. So just seeing uh, certain social uh, taboos or so-called taboos right. being embraced in these spaces is affirming for a lot of people. Uh, yes, and, right? Like, totally it is. Like, anything that sort of, like, breaks away from the sort of, like, fetishization of the 19th century thing that, like, classical music concert halls have, great, awesome, yeah. here for it. But, like, a lot of what we do, so in our life as Commando, um, we play in spaces that are kind of the opposite. Like, specifically, sort of queer gathering spaces are so historically, by out of necessity, centered around substance use and substance abuse um, that, like, you know, that band, um, a large percentage of it is sober um, mm. because to be a queer artist as a boomer or like even as an Xer, right, like to do the sort of things that are extreme and to exist in those spaces almost required a level of dissociation sure. and a reward for doing so, right? Like you are, you get a lot of positive validation for doing things maybe you otherwise wouldn't with a sober, clear mind. Um, and so for us in those spaces it's the exact opposite it's almost like you know what is our relationship to creating cultural queer space that is not centering um i mean then this is also like, like so far from cannabis honestly right it's like all all substances and what what that means for a normalization of a culture we want to make that yeah. also maybe is distinct from us personally as humans yeah. But before we uh, go too deep, so you've both mentioned the Living Earth Show and uh, Commando. You're, you're, mm. you're both very busy. Uh, <laughs> let, let's start by carving out what exactly is the Living Earth Show? <laughs> uh, you want to take the Travis or should I? Yeah, you know, we Andy and I have a Master Blaster relationship, and <laughs> I'm going to throw this one to Master that's that's not i don't like that at all <laughs> i do though and i really like making you deal with it god okay that's, who's the master now um god okay well so the living Earth show we made it in we in we met in grad school in um at the san francisco conservatory and um we sort of both had a shared institutional love of contemporary music mm. um coming from like an academic background like a in percussion and electric guitar and you know the summer festivals of like bang on a can and banff and all that right and we followed a pretty institutional path afterwards of like in that late o's moment of like uh what was like the thing they called like funk oh the music? The, um, the, the uh the indie uh it wasn't indie yeah, classical whatever nonsense classical indie yeah yeah that thing um where there were like all those ensembles that were sort of like taking the entrepreneurial bent into contemporary music and like mm -hmm. commissioning things but it's cool because we're like not wearing all black um and <laughs> or we we can plug in our instruments whatever and yeah. so we like did the same sort of thing following that path for the first couple of years we were basically we wanted to be an ensemble that validated our training in some meaningful way because it was really fun to play that stuff and we spent a lot of time studying it so we should probably like you know in a sunk cost kind of way get some do this professionally somehow yeah, school's expensive. Give me a job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, like, you know, we started this as an ensemble, a traditional commissioning ensemble in the vein of you know, all, all the other, you know, the, the sort of the tradition of Western classical chamber music. We'll commission pieces, even though it's for our instruments, which are guitar and percussion, um, it'll still be notated the same way, generally, like, acquired through a network that grew slowly and organically, specifically through our institutions mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. like oh you know we'll meet one person at school and then they'll introduce us to their colleague or their professor or their student or whatever and sort of like we'll have develop a body of repertoire steeped specifically in the conservatory tradition and do that thing and exist in those spaces um, and that was very quickly apparent how unfulfilling and maybe like counter to all of our values as humans mm -hmm. that sort of pursuit was and Insular. Yeah, on on exclusive, on purpose, all the things. Right. right? Yes, yes. Um, and all, just, you know, in, in every possible way. And so, like, I think we basically changed, like, a couple of years in, the organizational, like, 
the the guiding question behind what we did is like how can the tools of the classical tradition be used to basically make the world suck less mm -hmm. um and and in that sense we basically were like okay we have this training we have this we a little bit of like a platform at this point um is what we do in any way useful to the people who are making art that we think is actually vital and necessary to the world and a functioning human society yeah yeah and like that that idea of contemporary music, or as a lot of people say, contemporary classical, I think mm -hmm. it can uh, create and manifest barriers that are just as strong as the folks who do center the the Brahms and the and the Beethoven. What 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 is your uh, unique approach or vision for that so called genre? Ten years in, over over a a decade in. Yeah. So basically, I think like the important thing for us is to really reframe a pretty fundamental question of the field, which like I think for a lot of folks and a lot of like the way our training teaches us, it's like when you're creating new things within the tradition, the the guiding question is like how can you as an artist, as a commissioning entity, as a performer, as a composer write the next chapter of classical music history the, the chapter of classical music history that reflects you know our world and like tells the story of 2022 or whatever and that question to us is still really flawed mm -hmm. and what we want to do is an ensemble and organ an arts organization a record label all the things that we have under the umbrella of the living earth show now is like make the question how can the tools of the classical music tradition actually be useful to artists who are making important work period like, you know, whether that's a composer who does work very traditionally in classical music with symphonies or someone who's never read music in their life, but is very clearly a, a very, very important and necessary composer. Like, I think the, the, the issue of the field that we try to shy away from on, and just to like get as far away from it as possible is the idea that like, I don't know, I, there's a lot of institutions that'll see an important composer or someone like an artist doing important work outside of the field and be like, you know, it'd be great. If that artist wrote an overture for this symphony mm -hmm. it's like no that's mm -hmm. insane like <laughs> i don't want to hear that that person write a string whatever or like a chamber whatever or like it's our job as musicians to meet to be a useful mechanism for important people to make something they wouldn't otherwise and if we're not necessary that's on us that's not on them yeah travis Dig it. yeah the only thing i also want to say is like tools of the classical tradition which is something that we bandy about quite a bit but like over the the 12 years that we've been you know playing and working together like we've branched out from just being a performing ensemble to being like a nonprofit arts organization mm -hmm. and then also now this past year um a record label so when we say tools of the classical tradition it isn't just like oh we're gonna like try to interpret music like kind of with a with a schooled ear it's not that it's actually just like okay well like let's get this thing that um is really awesome and has been thriving in the sunshine of absolute neglect and get whatever money we can like to just like bring it to light and then you know the logical extension of that like this year was also let's take part in the release of these works since the majority of people are going to experience this music like in its recorded version now yeah. more than ever yeah and i'm all about affirming everyone's artistic expression as valid or useful as we're saying here in some way but i think uh there's also it's worth mentioning that this so-called classical training might not be useful. I mean, is asking Fully. that question affirming or or just saying that there it will always be a use for learning music theory and 16th notes and all that sort of thing? <laughs> I mean, that's exactly one of the things about I think us as an ensemble that's really important to recognize. Our traditions are like already our instrumental traditions are shoehorned into a classical music world that doesn't really like Percussion doesn't make sense on a music, like on, on staff. On staff paper, it doesn't make sense. Like reading drum set notation, it's insane that that was sort of pigeonholed into this, like this tradition, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like our, our tradition, like our instruments, like percussion and electric guitar, both can sound like literally anything, right? Like percussion is anything you can hit. Electric guitar is any sound you can make digitally. Mm -hmm. And also our tradition as performers and instrumentalists encompasses so much more. And it's incumbent upon us as practitioners of those instruments to be able to speak multiple musical languages and draw from the vocabularies of other traditions in ways that are not like dilettante-ish. It's like, like that's what that should be. I mean, in, in Commando, for example, right? Like I... There, there are like there's obviously there's crossover like you know if you I think anytime anyone learns anything that is applicable to anything else one does mm -hmm. but like 
Yeah. That's not necessarily audible. Um, and it, and it shouldn't be like, that's not interesting to anyone other than maybe like the, uh, us as academic, whatever's that's not, that's not the point. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I when I tie that conversation and that idea to, you know, some of your broader work and mission, you know, folks can go to your website and see that uh, it says, you know, uh, using uh, classical music tools to foreground BIPOC and uh, queer artists. There are a lot of folks, a lot of white people in the field who sort of feel um, handicapped, for, for lack of a better word, when it comes to engaging that part of the conversation what has that looked like for the two of you as white presenting artists who are working you know among the many things foregrounding queer and people of color artists um i can start and you want to start yeah i mean because there there is like there are personal components there are ge geographical components um like it's it's played out in in really like kind of interesting and personal ways i think like for both of us mm -hmm. um but you know, as always, I think that Andy, you're much God, more thoughtful. That's not true. That's just <laughs> Travis. Is being I always feel like today. when I say things, I need <laughs> corrections. But like, yeah, that's I mean, not true. I think okay, cool. So in in many ways, um, you know, being being a presenting organization uh, in the Bay Area was really, really, really fruitful. Um, was that it was small enough to be able to meet people from uh, different walks of life that were making music in different ways. And there were a lot of like being close to Mills, you know, was like very, Mills College was like very, was a completely different ecosystem of performers than like being close to the conservatory mm -hmm. or being close to state schools and the type of music that was like happening there. When we were, you know, graduates, like, you know, that network was like kind of built in and we were meeting people that were making music thoughtfully from completely different traditions and disciplines. Um, so I think like the the diversity of our programming, like the Bay Area had a lot to do with it like and and still continues to um some of the other stuff that i'm going to have you speak to Andy. cool i mean i think a lot of it also very much does boil down to the question of like here like we have we are at this place as musicians as artists and as an institution now like it's about the question of like is this useful can it be useful and mm -hmm. ask like that's like and then asking people who are making really important work and be okay if the answer is no sure but like every time one works with like and oftentimes, like, if that question is opened in a real and honest way, you'll get answers that really do, like, force one to reckon with the space one takes up in the world on a stage as an organization and just, like, as an artist. Yeah. Um, and we've been sort of fortunate enough to, I guess, Travis, as you were saying, like, the, the community of artists in the Bay really does foster a kind of connection if one looks for it or if one's sort of open to it or if one's, like, able to yeah i don't know it's it's it is a special place and in that area we have been able to work with folks who are like i think maybe just as listeners being really inspired and excited by like artists who are making important work and if you like it's impossible to be making important work and not reckoning with the space you take up and reckoning mm -hmm. with how the institution works in the world and how like it's impossible to sort of like talk about classical music and not talk about that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and i don't know if it's just like our work practice or what it has been over the past few years but it's just seemed really organic to me and like i mm -hmm. i really like the fact that like when i'm trying to shoot the shit with people or ask advice like the people i'm talking to don't look like me Yep, yep. And and considering the the diversity of the Bay Area beyond identity, you know, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about diversity of musical perspective and Absolutely. Uh, diversity of mission. What what do you look for in collaborators beyond, you know, highlighting the identity part of it? I mean, Okay, I've Travis. No, I've always felt like the identity like came second, where it was just mm -hmm. like whenever we'd be passing around sound clouds and stuff like that and then we'd come upon like something that uh, you know, didn't sound like anything else. It was just like, oh, okay. Like you would discover that they had an identity, like maybe that was something other than whiteness or cisness or whatever. But like, I don't, you know, it's never been enough for us to like foreground like a composer or a musical thinker just because of their identity. You right. Know? And, it's and, always 
and, and I and I really do honor that. And I, you know, I ask the question because it's the mm -hmm. the script of so many of the more traditional arts institutions to say, well, we put the music first, and and putting the music first, you know, everything else just goes completely out the window. So I I, I do think, yeah. you know, but, I, I honor what you're saying. That's, that's but the that's but so point. much of that smacks of just like, hey, we're doing the right thing. Don't attack us. You know, it's just like sure. we're we're doing the bare minimum of enough for you to like look away so we can keep taking the time. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. And it's also meant we've sort of found ourselves artistically in like intentionally uncomfortable positions. Um, like, you know, we've been as like our whiteness has been centered on stage in ways that like are uncomfortable for everyone, everyone that's like taking part in that interaction, whether that's like the audience or the composer or us, mm -hmm. like, you know, we've, our physical bodies have been used as an artistic tool which is something that is like, once you start, like, I think like in works like that, I'm, I'm speaking of like, there's a couple pieces where like our physical bodies were like sort of centered as like, as a focal artistic tool. Mm -hmm. and, and I know the pieces you're talking about. Well, yeah, um, which we can talk about in more detail, but like, you know, once one does that, the whole, one of many points is that like you're, it, it is sort of like a silly and sort of very obvious one, but like the bodies on stage are always the focal point of what's going on. Like sure. it is impossible to like are so much of the classical tradition is about invisibilizing the performers and sort of like being these 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 robotic automatons that like automata automatons whatever. Um, <laughs> but like you know that it really does like the identity doesn't matter. It's like you know the channeling the the sort of like the spirit of Bach. That's that's it, right? Right. And, and of course, that like that channeling is profoundly racialized and gendered, um, and sexualized. But like, you know, I think we like a lot of our works over the past like half decade have been, you know, when we are commissioning a composer or working with an artist, it's not about just sort of like what notes are going to be on the page. It's like what is what is the role of every single facet of this artistic interaction going to look like yeah yeah um, but for, for the past several weeks um on our show we've been talking about the transformation of audiences as a part of the transformation of these spaces when you talk about you know who is the focal point what is the focal point in the conversation surrounding that i don't think we can leave out audiences in that conversation so you know with with that in mind i wonder if you can speak to uh your artistic goals as it directly applies to audiences are you looking mm. for something different from an from from an audience what, what what does that conversation look like it's super can I, can I take this one real quick travis or actually yeah do you, do you mind I, if I, take I, this one? I mean i i the first thing that like i would want to talk about or at least introduce into the conversation is like work that we've done uh that has actually been pointed at the audience i mean like in <laughs> well, we'll, we'll talk really, about that yeah. point pointing works at the audience as you say yeah i mean just just as a bullet point i want to put that in well i think like i i where i'd start with that question is like we get on on grant applications all the time like the it's from like institutional funders like what does your audience look like how like mm -hmm. how would you describe it how do you foster it and to me our 100 percent primary audience is the composers and collaborators we work with like our job is to be the best and most sort of like uncompromising platform for them to create work that they've always wanted to do or like their most ambitious work or the thing that they thought they couldn't. Yeah. And so oftentimes that is directly at odds with what would be marketable to a classical presenter or their classical audience or even like anyone who's new to the field like there's a lot of times you know and we're not even talking about the works that directly antagonize our traditional audience which of which there's a lot but like you know when i'm working with someone it's like i my my job is almost to turn off the part of my brain that's like oh people are gonna like this hmm. like my role as a collaborator and as like someone who's interpreting the work of someone else is to realize their vision uncompromisingly and allow and then then like after the fact as administrator we'll go back and be like well, how can we like how can we spin this to be palatable across like whatever thing but it's like it's almost like they're two separate identities that have to be divorced from each other in order to have 
have work that really does feel like it's pushing things forward existing in the world because every time one starts to cater to what i don't know what cater to what other people think it feels like it holds stuff back right like, well because music is so steeped in your tradition and what you what you expect it's like your your expectations and what you're comfortable with and so like and that's great that's what makes it so powerful it's what makes it connect so viscerally yeah but also if our job as a nonprofit arts organization is to like exist outside of the marketplace is to create things that foster a certain kind of progress and like really do things that push in ways that might be uncomfortable thinking about audience almost has to or like it, it's a separate conversation to like but it's a well separate and it isn't like my like i, I think about audience being every collaborator we've ever worked with mm. like that's who we're serving as an arts organization primarily yep and when we talk about some of these uh traditional structures and ideas i feel like the very phrase classical music is a part of that i've, I've taken the time to uh listen to the living earth show collaborations and uh and creations and I'm a radical in many ways, but I can definitely make a case for what you create as classical music, you know, depending on, you know, uh, considering the work I do and the way I, I do that. Um, but that's just me. What, what, what are your relationships with that phrase classical music as it relates to the work that you do? Complicated. <laughs> it's, it's changed a lot over time um, where at first, you know, it was like us just kind of like going along and being complicit with, um, okay, well, we're doing this in the classical tradition. And then it became this kind of um, very self-conscious re revolt about, oh, we, we'd say, oh, we play classical music on the wrong instruments. Okay. Um, and, then, and then we found that that actually didn't really, it wasn't really a service to the people we were collaborating with. Mm-hmm. Um, to just fully embracing it, like we're we're a classical music ensemble, like mm -hmm. that's what we are, and I think that like it it really um, makes it easier, and then to make it explicit like that, not only easier, but it's the truth. I mean, that's how we try to that's how we try to treat every collaboration as if it is part of the tradition. Sure. Um, I might actually push. I might actually disagree with you a little bit on this. And good, like, do it. I think like, all right, I will. Um, I think like. You know, over time, like the like experimental music has been a thing that sat a little better than classical music, mm -hmm. um, in terms of what we do and how we approach it. Um, like, because there's so much of what we do as an organization that really is not classical music by any like commando, not classical music by any definition. Um, and a lot of projects too that like fit a lot more as you know if if like improvised music or noise music are genres of music independent of classical music yeah those works would fit better there it would round up to noise more than they would round up to classical music and so like even talking about it like that suggests a certain kind of institutional primacy that's really important for us to recognize or like us as an ensemble to like recognize recognize reckon with and like you know it's it's useful when giving artists a platform and like a certain kind of cultural legitimacy, but also has the effect of muting what someone might do or like might refracting their work or like all, all sorts of things. And so like, it's, it's a very, very important thing that we, that's like a part of our artistic lives. Um, yeah. We commission composers in a very specific tradition. We, we work with notated music. We work with scores. Our training allows us to rehearse and internalize music in a way that is, inextricably linked from that from that history um however oh, you are you are you're just just i'm sorry i just like marvel sometimes at how good you are at yes and <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the only way forward yes and. <laughs> <laughs> thank you but um you know like i think every for every it's one of the things that's actually been a little hard for our, our ensemble to exist um is that and you know, we, one thing that we that is true is like whatever, like whatever your sort of like listening habits are, whatever you enjoy, like we, I guarantee you, we've done something that'll alienate you, like so deeply. Like mm. there's one one segment of our work will alienate you so hard, at least one, probably many. And so I think for a lot of chamber music ensembles, we, it's it's kind of like there there's groups that I love and everything they commission like sort of almost has like a red thread whether it's instrumentation or style or like musical sort of vocabulary and it feels like you're listening to a band you like where i feels like that for me and whereas for us it's like every single like every album on this record label now will sound like a wildly different band like 
not even on the same instruments, not even close. Like, you know, because like our instruments are so open-ended on by design, like it, it's sometimes hard for an audience, a traditional audience member to latch on to us as a music fan because they'll like, you know, throw our, like whatever we have on Spotify, throw that on shuffle and it sounds insane. Sure. And which many people would see as a good thing, you know, on, yeah. the, on the other side. Oh, yeah. I mean, we do. That's we, we <laughs> That feels essential. And it also feels sort of like, antithetical to music existing in the marketplace mm. um which which again like our responsibility as a nonprofit arts organization is to do that it's to like which is also like classical music is is a funny word because like what does that sound like right right like and and, and the and the reason that I, I push so hard for recontextualizing that phrase because i can get down with uh uh, you use the word, the phrase noise music. I can get down with yeah. the word noise as a descriptor and not as a, a pejorative and fostering mm -hmm. all of these different spaces. But at the same time, I can't let a culture or an infrastructure just exist because sometimes those things have implications that go beyond those institutions. For example, I go back and forth with how I feel about orchestras because I feel like those artists deserve a space. But at the same time, if we maintain orchestral institutions as they've always existed, there are other implications and other status quos that we are maintaining at the same time. That, that's the that's really the biggest reason why I'm, I'm so challenged by um, not considering more things classical and not broadening what we mean when we use that phrase classical music. I mean, I, I love your podcast for 10 zillion reasons. And one of them is sort of like the, the red thread of discussing like what belongs in a conversation about classical music. Like, yeah. I don't know if any sort of like mainstream thing that like sort of brings that conversation to the fore, like, like y'all do. So that's like, been just as a fan really fun to not to now like Thank be <laughs> a bit of a part of but like i mean we have projects that like i mean commando is not like what what would possibly be classical music about that other than like the fact that we have classical training we came from conservatories sure. um but you know at the same time like we rehearse and memorize in a specific kind of way or like i do like i approach like in that project i played I don't know how much we need to talk about like what that project is, but like my initial rules of like that project were like I had to play drums like by Brad Wilk rules, which meant like if he the drummer for Rage Against the Machine, if he couldn't play it, I wouldn't. Okay. Um, and which is like a, a fun handicap. Um, he's, he's a great drummer, but like but but like would never play anything like that's not particular. Like is a is a very specific kind of drummer. Right. Right. And so, like. And the majority of that band by far does not read music, has no interest in like the dis in any discussion of classical music. That's not like even even on their radar as artists and as composers. Yeah. Um, and so like for us, it's like if we call that classical music, who is that for? Sure. And, and that's a really important. And I, I say that just like I, I don't necessarily know the answer. I Oh, sorry, Travis, go ahead. It's it. I mean, it's interesting because it's even divided within our ensemble, right? It's like how how personal like you make that, like whether or not you want to just be a musician and then detach from that tradition, and and it's it's like a thing that you engage in, or you know, I guess like in my situation, I I just kind of feel like it's a thing that I carry with me and try to do something I'm proud of with it. Yeah, I, I, I want to loop this conversation back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier Sorry. when it comes to, oh, no, oh, it's fine, it's great, uh, with geography. You know, my conception of the Bay Area is one that would allow for a project like this to grow and, and thrive, a place that's sort of weird, again, a, a word not as a pejorative, but as a, as a, no, a descriptor. Uh, but you've been, you know, you're, you're well-traveled as an organization, as an ensemble. You've been to South Carolina. And, and all sorts of other places. I wonder how geography has uh, played a role in the development of your projects. Are you received mm -hmm. as well in, on the East Coast as you are in the Bay Area? Well, I think the first thing that geography did for us is I, I know we would not exist had we started in New York. We would not be sure. doing it right now um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think because the first couple of years we basically lived in a practice room together for probably three, four years, just like memorizing complicated music for a couple dozen people. 
Um, and that like made us develop a musical language that like, you know, when we memorize things now, we draw from that. We draw from the moments we spent like memorizing Fernie Ho and Ken Wayno's piece and like all those things, all like these very like complicated things that are for not like, you know, that are, that are, I think I still think are pretty great, but like, we're not for, we're not lucrative decisions in the moment. And were we in New York, I know like Travis for sure would be like a very, very in-demand person playing so many things. Like in, in the, the way like the, if you, I don't know how much folks know about like what the Bang on a Can Festival is like and what that scene is like, but the idea that you can just play like 10 million gigs like back to back to back to back to back and like learn so much music so quickly and then do it and then sort of put it on a different hat, do another one. like. Our first couple of years, we weren't doing that. We were like really getting deep into building like a a musical, an ensemble based vocabulary, mm. like for how to memorize collectively, how to cue and perform all those things. So I think the Bay being kind of not a hub for classical music allowed that to exist. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting, especially considering the San Francisco Conservatory, not only the San Francisco Symphony, but the Oakland East Bay Symphony, mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, with it not being a hub, it's it still seems like it's a an ecosystem that's really rich and not only new idea, but the the traditions that so many of us try to dismantle. Yeah. Totally. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it was it, it was good at the time. You know, I think like some of the things that like did make it good for us were great in moderation, but like they've 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 changed like a a, a little bit, um, particularly financial pressures. I think the things that yeah really did work to our advantage is that like there, um, you know, there were other opportunities for us to like play music and 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 maybe survive a little bit, but there weren't that many. Mm -hmm. So we were always kind of like directed into putting energy back into rehearsing and the ensemble and figuring out how to do pieces that were designed to be impossible you know we were we were really able to not be that distracted like particularly like when we were out of school and just like trying to figure it all out you know we always like came back to like meeting at the rehearsal space at 10 a.m right every day and right. then also i think that like how expensive the city was even at the time like mm -hmm. also really Much helped us now. too because it, it really kept us on it where it's just like okay like how do we you know how to you know you, you start out and you start playing and then you you want to present and then you feel so insignificant which you know like to do another like kind of metal full circle which is where i think a lot of the you know some of the the decisions that we made that would be considered macho like came from where it's just like you feel so small you feel so insignificant like you don't know how you're going to get attention and and try to elevate the thing that you're doing and the people that you're playing with so you're just like okay well you know that's where you try to inflate it, you yeah. know, a little bit, uh, which is what I, what I think we, what I think we really like tried to do until we found like a better way of doing it. But it was, I think it was just like a lot of that pressure, like having, like having a little bit of financial pressure that like translated to like, how do we get in front of people and how do we matter, um, that, that kept our attention on the project, like in, in those early years. So, and, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to ask, you know, how do you balance that uh, financial viability against some of the more progressive conversations that are popping up when it comes to class solidarity and anti-capitalism? Mm -hmm. Is it all about breaking even? I mean, what, what, what's your, your financial well, approach? I mean, that's a, that's really complicated. And like, it's, uh, it is whenever those things feel like they're in conflict directly, which I mean, they're always in conflict, but whenever there's like a direct conflict, like the, the money side has to lose and that has to be so prominent. And like, mm. we've also like, as we've built into like, like the ensemble into an arts organization, like those things are like, as we build a board of directors, um, like the importance of having like, you know, a board of directors that represents our audience and our, the people we want to serve and what, what feels like the folks we want leading the arts organization of our dreams. Mm -hmm. Like that's very rarely going to be folks whose lives are steeped in capitalism as we know. Mm -hmm. um, and folks who are like, you know, there's, and that's that, so that, that is a conversation that is like, but also, you know, one has to like, unfortunately one doesn't really have a choice of like the, financial system under which they live. Right. Um, and so, so for us, there's like, I think it involves very constant reflection and very sure. intentional, like, um, conversations about like what each decision means, like who it's for, how it's made 
and kind of like like allowing voices into that conversation we trust to guide those decisions. Yeah. And it's it's a great thing. You know, it's just that like um, that's where, you know, the soul and the conscience of the ensemble comes from is just like having everything being so complicated and then dealing with, you know, gross problems that like involve money in the split of it and then having to rely upon constant consensus and compromise that I think is a real strength. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't want to end our conversation without mm-hmm. talking a little bit about Commando, since <laughs> it's been uh, mentioned a couple times. I'm just, you know, for, for the folks at home, I'm just going to uh, read uh, from the from that portion of the site. It says, a San Francisco-based collective of queer and trans artists coming together to use the traditionally heteronormative vocabulary of heavy metal rap and poetry as a unified site to aggressively celebrate queerness and dismantle heteropatriarchy. I can, I can speak to the heteronormative aspects of uh, rap and even in poetry. Um, I'm not so familiar with that um, within heavy metal and then moreover that as a a meeting place to, Mm. as you say here, aggressively celebrate queerness. I wonder if you can speak more to that. Go for it. Travis, you want want to start? Okay, yeah. I think that like, you know, separating the, the genesis of that project, like, had a lot to do with reimagining the the age of rap metal. So I think that like they've already been synthesized like in our mind or in our concept was that like you know the the rap metal thing had already happened. Yeah. Well actually yeah yeah so so Garrett, what, what were you listening to in 1999? Uh 1999 uh Project Pat, uh Juvenile, all you know mm. all of all of those folks the late, you know, the early 2000s right. rap basically. But, but, right, right, right. But, watching TRL. Yeah, anything anything whiter. <laughs> uh, I, I would have to, I mean, maybe TRL would come on every now and again, but I'm thinking more of 106 and Park and, you know, and, mm-hmm. and maybe that's another conversation based on, you know, I, I'm from Memphis so being in a, a predominantly black city, most of the things I consumed looked like me and, and reflected my, my culture. So I, I've never really thought about how those things of uh, play a role in things that fall outside of that blackness if we're going to you know mm. use that language sure it's it's fascinating for us because like i think we're probably r- roughly the same generation and so like 1999 2000 for me and for travis like when we were like early middle school was um like the that era right before napster where like clear channel bought all the radio stations and nationalized the playlists mm-hmm. and so things like does like 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 Limp Biscuit and Corn? Sure, I've heard of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, were like were ubiquitous in a way that like a band would never be again. Like I think they sold like forty million albums, something insane like that. Um, had a level of sort of like cultural prominence and ubiquity in like the pop music sphere. Like I feel like like their every album they released would like break some sort of record mm-hmm. of just like just moving units. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and, and then like, it was also like popular news at the time that this was like due to um, like Geffen was doing a, a pay-to-play policy, like with Limp Biscuit in particular, and it was mm-hmm. just like, oh my god, like it, it was making it plain that oh, you could just like spend money and then just <laughs> yeah, and get the statistics. And that also like you know things like Woodstock '99, like these sort of like profound kind of like moments that were very national news because of their sort of like just just horrific like masculine misogyny and homophobia and whatever um you that was like and also like this like this it's a really fascinating genre to reflect on um because it's it's also like it's kind of rage against the machine's fault okay Uh, like in the way that they like successfully synthesized rap hip-hop metal and sort of funk and punk and all all of these things together and like tom morello being what's up sure it's a it's kind of faith no more's fault too they, yeah, them, the two of them, yes. But like, <laughs> but like, it's a genre that like, like diluted every single element mm. into okay. a specific kind of like heteronormative masculine whiteness. Um, that's just like, I, I don't know if, if you're, if anyone wants to go back and watch that Woodstock 99 performance that Limp Bizkit did, like the headlining one that like sort of famously went south real quick. Um, and it's just like seeing that many people and that sort of like insane popularity, um, you know, influenced me as a, like, this is when I'm new to buying albums and experiencing music. Um, and so like, 
a question we had starting this project was like, what if that cultural moment had been used for good instead of evil? Like how mm. would the world have been different? Um, and it like, it became something very, very different than that. Um, it became basically like a project with there, there's two kind of like, it started with two guiding force. Like we, like the vocalists who are basically quarterbacking a majority of the songs are Juba Kalamka and Lim Breedlove, both of whom have had unbelievably heroic histories as queer artists in not just the Bay, but the, the world. I mean, Linny, um, his band Tribe 8 from the late 80s, early mid 90s, revolutionized so many things about the space cis men take up in rock spaces. And Juba um, created, I mean, so many things, uh, but I think Homo Hop and his group Deep Dick Collective as some of the first sort of out hip hop performers in the Bay and the world. Like, there's these decades and decades of, of history and power and, and like influence. And, you know, the world would be better if they were, you know, Fred Durst. Sure, and sure. So, so when we started working together, it like a little bit had the, the vibe of like revisionist history. And then it became, how can we use all of the things that we do to make a, something that you want to make that would be cool, would be exciting and, you know, your ideal music. Yeah, and this is good. I wasn't expecting to to think along this this thought train today, but you know, you mentioned all of these bands that I mm -hmm. definitely don't know. But with that being said, I know Corn because mm -hmm. at one point in my life I was feeling emo and somehow <laughs> got into Evanescence, and their cover of Thoughtless <laughs> is oh how God. I learned who Corn was. <laughs> I know amazing. I know the song Smells Like Teen Spirit because The Breakfast Club, a nationally syndicated <laughs> black radio show, that's what they start with every day I, I can mm -hmm. I can go on and name all of these connections so with that you know being said I wonder if you have any uh, experience creating those bridges for audiences or maybe even collaborative artists considering the history you're aware of and the intersectional aspect of all this music that we don't always talk about I can do that with a personally uh, like like kind of intersectional thing where it's like I had all those $18 CDs and like I loved them mm -hmm. and then like you don't need I mean like you can go back and listen to like All in the Family or something on Follow the Leader and be like wow that's a problem and then so I love those records I also grew up you know around transness so like having to um <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Having to deal with like both, I really like these CDs and, you know, like that is, you know, kind of where the joy in the project like came from. It's like, you know, when you put those two things together and, and, and try to make it right, you're like, oh, there, I fixed it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, it also like, again, in the same way we're working with like, like any other composer, it's like, what Juba, what do you want to do? Like, how can mm -hmm. we make a thing that's like, and we can sort of like bring, we bring a lot of references to each other. I mean, not just like, a, well, really around every single way that we like, li like grew up is so wildly different. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of like meeting somewhere where we're able to volley these things back and forth and like create music that incorporates all of it is, is, you know, kind of really about trust. Yeah, um, yeah. And Juba, as an artist, I would trust more than any human on earth. Um, <laughs> God, he's so good at so many things. It's really, yeah. yeah if, you, if you're unfamiliar with even like the early Deep Dick Collective records, they're just stunning and amazing. And his work as an author and a poet and like uh, organized, all, all the things. But I mean, for us, like, you know, we can like tell him, um, I think like, I, I told him, like, sent him, like, the video of, like, Tom Morello very sheepishly admitting that he was, like, a sort of sex worker, like, okay. in college or whatever. And, like, he thought it was, like, the funniest thing in the world. And then, like, we wrote a song about it um, that, like, incorporates a lot of other things. Like, the reference, like, you know, Juba's work is references on references on references on references that are so specific to him. Mm -hmm. And it's a really fun and rewarding and important thing is to, like you know, not just like allow that to exist, but like be able to share that. So what will signal as we wrap up here, what will signal the uh, completion or the execution of your mission? I know that we can say the work is always ongoing, but is mm -hmm. is there a, a point 
a, a, a specific point that you're working toward and, you know, the way that you approach all of this music and all of these conversations? I mean, I think that, that that's a big problem, right? It's like, I think that I success, like to me, I know it's a different thing for me than it is for Andy. But success for me, like, has always been like the longevity is like, however, you know, even if like, you know, the, the ebb and flow of people that are attending your shows, like watching your things, commenting on your things, you know, like, I'm okay with the ebb and flow as long as there is this longevity that we've had. And I hope that we continue to enjoy and that I don't know if that feels goalless, but or just <laughs> but the, like, the institution of a system. Yeah. Know, I mean, that's, system that's being put in place. Yeah. That's the thing I worship is that longevity. You know, it's funny because like, I think, I think about this a lot and especially like I have a lot of music, musician friends who are like working in popular music and there's very specific metrics that are used to judge success and popularity. That, that, that and, can be bought and sold, you know, oh yeah. when, oh, when, it, when it comes to listenership and all of that sort of thing, of course. Fully. And I think like for us, or it, and for me at least, it's like really important to not engage with that as like a, or like almost recognize that that as a goal is antithetical to the actual goal of creating work that feels meaningful and is important and necessary. And like, also being very comfortable with the idea. And this is also like, is a, a thing from just thinking about historical music, like judging necessity and impact and influence is impossible to do in the moment. Sure. And so it's all again, kind of very much about trust is like the people we're working with, we trust as artists and like trust their, and I think we trust them because they really hit us as fans. Like every single person we work with, like we're a giant fan of, and they've, changed our lives in some way as listeners. And we sort of have to, you know, you never know what's going to happen, but we sort of have to imagine that their next thing will have the effect on others that it had on us. So what's the, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I would just say that like, you know, we prognosticate plenty. Like we really try, like we, you know, it's it's not just saying that, okay, like, which we do oftentimes in mission statements and and, and discussions about audiences, like when we're prompted, talk about like, you know, we're really just doing this to, for our collaborators to elevate our collaborators and all that but we do really think about it you know we want it to have impact like we we want people to see it and and feel things and we really put a lot of thought into how everything we make will be consumed and by how many people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so so is there an upcoming uh collaboration or recent project that you appoint people to uh as far as uh an introduction to the living earth project and and what your mission and <laughs> and uh and perspective on everything is where where do people need to start when they uh, begin the journey of engaging what you've created it's funny because well here travis you go first you go first sorry the projects page on our website <laughs> sure, that'll do it. Um, but I mean, I think also the, the, the goal of every project is to be so deep in an artist's work that like, or our collaborators work that like, it's, it's designed to be sort of a culmination of whatever they've been working on up to this point. And so that it, it feels kind of like deep in someone else's vocabulary. So I think there's not one thing that encapsulates all of it on purpose, like by design. I think the idea is like, if one clicks around, they will find stuff that is that is interesting to them as a listener. Um, and also things that will be the opposite. Um, and also like perspectives and points of view that are, that are necessary for every human to be aware of. Um, and, and things that maybe like deal with subject matter that would be less interesting to others. Um, and so I think just like, it is very tailored to you know what each each kind of person is looking for in their experience as an as as a listener. 